Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I am wonderful. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Nothing super exciting right now. We were talking about the heat, and we weren't going to talk about the heat until later, but Mandy, for two seconds, can we talk about the heat? I'm dying. It is literally melt your face off within two seconds of stepping outside hot right now. It's, it's crazy. Unbearable. But isn't there like a big heat wave everywhere? I, I think, think there so. Is. Yeah, because I've been seeing a lot of other people, not just in Florida, that have been talking about the heat lately in the last like several days. But it is so hot. I cannot believe it. I checked my little thing, uh, my weather app on my phone, and it was saying it, uh, the real feel is 107 right now. Mm-hmm. And it's just so humid. And it's like, yeah, it's pretty miserable. It is so miserable. It's like I, I yeah, I don't even know how to explain it, but I'm just, I'm angry too. Like I'm at the, I'm angry part of this and like our air isn't even going down very much at night. So I'm freaking out about that. So I'm like, I can't even get cold enough to sleep. These are all very first world problems I'm aware of. Very but I'm much just so, like, yes. 
it's it is hot. It is it is hot. Weather report. It's freaking hot. It's and so hot. I yeah. I just actually came back from running errands a little bit ago, and I came inside the house, and like the first thing I said when I walked in the door was, "Why is it so hot in here?" And mm-hmm. I just thought the air was off, but I was like, "No, it's just struggling because it's yeah. so hot outside." <laughs> so yeah, it is definitely hot. I am envious of everybody who lives a little further up north and maybe has yes. a little bit a little bit cooler than what we are having right now. But from what I understand, it is pretty hot in places all across the country right now. So totally. Yeah. But yeah, we are, we stand with you. We're miserable as well. (laughs) (laughs) We absolutely are. Are you ready to get into the episode this week, Mandy? I sure am. So this week we're talking about the murder of Deborah Reese. And before we get started into her actual murder, um, we're going to learn a little bit about the person who eventually is accused of the crime. Liddell Lee was born in the summer of 1965 in Blytheville, Arkansas. He was one of seven children born to a teen mother who struggled with alcohol addiction. Liddell never had a relationship with his father, and at the age of five, he was sent to live with his maternal grandmother. The family struggled financially to the point where the kids often had to skip meals. Liddell had really a rough time from the time he was born, due in part to being born with fetal alcohol syndrome. He struggled through special education classes while he was in school, and ultimately he was held back on two different occasions throughout his tenure at school. By the time he was a teenager, he began stealing and selling things for cash. When he was just 13 years old, he was arrested for the first time and sent to a juvenile facility. While he's at this juvenile facility, he suffers at least one traumatic brain injury while boxing. By 1993, when our story takes place, Liddell was no stranger to law enforcement, and he found himself in all kinds of trouble with everything from burglary to misdemeanor assault. But things really couldn't have been more different for Deborah Reese. February 9th, 1993 was like any other day for Deborah Reese at her home in Jacksonville, Arkansas. Deborah had recently remarried, and she had a seven-year-old child from a previous marriage. Deborah spent her days as a doting mother, making sure the household ran smoothly. Deborah was extremely close to her family, and she spent lots of time at her parents' house during the day. She'd often watch TV or go shopping with her mom, Catherine, before she'd go pick up her son from school. Catherine and Deborah were just about as close as a mother and daughter could be. They really were best friends. The two even lived just two houses apart. And I can see that as being a very good thing. And sometimes... (laughs) it's nice to have family nearby for sure no comment for me (laughs) yeah (laughs) we'll leave it right there so that february morning at around 10 50 a.m deborah called her mother to tell her about this weird interaction she just had with a stranger who came to her door she said this man comes and knocks on her door and asked if her husband was home and if he could borrow some tools Deborah immediately felt like something was off with this conversation, and she told the stranger that no, she didn't have any tools, and she closed the door, and she continued on with her morning. She then calls her mom to tell her she was going to come over to her house right after she finished curling her hair. However, Deborah never made it over. After repeatedly calling her daughter to find out where she was, Catherine went over to Deborah's house at around 1 p.m., and that's when she looked through the window of the living room and saw it was completely torn upside down and the volume on the television has been cranked all the way up. Catherine obviously knew something was wrong, and so she asked one of Deborah's neighbors to call the police. The police arrived on scene at 1.28 p.m., and that's when Catherine experienced every mother's worst nightmare. She saw her daughter, Deborah, dead, lying on her bed. A rug was draped over her with her feet dangling on the floor. 
Deborah had been hit over 36 times with a tire thumper, which is a device that is used to check the tire pressure in trucks. The tire thumper was given to her by her husband, who was a truck driver, and he was out on the road a lot. But he gave it to her to serve as a means of protection when he was out on the road. This tire thumper was found near Deborah's body, wrapped in a white t-shirt and covered in blood. It was quickly determined that not only was Deborah beaten to death, but she had also been sexually assaulted and strangled. The coroner took note that Deborah had marks on her face that he believed to be from the pattern um, that was on the rug in the bedroom that they found draped over her legs. The coroner also believed that the attacker hit Deborah while her face was against this rug, creating this mark. Deborah was murdered in her bedroom with blood covering almost every surface. Police began to investigate the rest of the house and collect all the evidence. They found that Deborah's curling iron was still plugged in on the bathroom counter, which led them to believe that she was killed almost immediately after she hung up the phone with her mom. They also found two partial footprints as well as two pieces of paper on the floor near the bed. They found one single hair. They believed that this hair was left by the killer during the struggle. The police continue to search the house and also find Deborah's purse in the living room dumped out with her wallet emptied. As police begin to speak to Deborah's parents, her dad, Stephen, says that he had recently withdrawn 14 $100 bills from the bank and he had given three of those bills to Deborah. The $300 was not found in her possession. It wasn't at the house, and police believed her killer must have taken it with him. Fingerprints were also taken from the front door, television, wallet, and a calendar from Deborah's purse. The police finally have their first big break in the case when they contact the bank where Stephen had withdrawn the $1,400. They found that the $100 bills he had withdrawn were all brand new bills and the serial numbers were in sequential order. I mean, I know that happens a lot, but I feel like I always get raggedy money. So um, (laughs) I thought, like, that's so great that they have something to go on, right? Some kind of information. And so basically that means that the bills that are still at the bank, they would be able to use those serial numbers and figure out the numbers that Deborah had, or at least close to it, between what her dad had, what she probably had, and then what's now at the bank. So obviously this is a long shot, but it's really all they have to go on at first. Police then began speaking to neighbors and eyewitnesses as the crime scene was being processed. They spoke to one of Deborah's neighbors across the street. His name was Andy Gomez. Andy tells police that around 11.15 a.m., he was actually looking out of his window when he sees this black man wearing a jacket standing at the front of Deborah's door. He said that the man quickly yanked the screen door open and, quote, made a beeline inside just real fast, end quote. Then somewhere around 11.45 and noon, Andy sees this man leave Deborah's home, but as he leaves, he, quote, made rapid head movements as if he was checking to see if he was being watched, end quote. Andy was actually so uneasy about what he had just seen that he decided to get into his car and follow this man. He ends up losing track of him several times on his quest to find him, but continues his search for the man for the next 20 to 25 minutes until he finally sees him talking to a woman outside a house on Galloway Circle. I can't imagine. I mean, I I feel like every once in a while you'll see something a little suspicious or a person that's just acting a little strange. But right. to think like I need to follow this person and see what they're doing, that really goes kind of to me to show like how bizarre it must have been you know to see absolutely yeah 
Yeah, I, I feel like especially like you could say one thing about the person going inside, but as soon as you see them coming out now and like looking at who could be watching them, I imagine that's like a stomach drop moment yeah, for you. Yeah, absolutely. So Andy finished his statement to the police, and then they followed him over to the home that he saw the man at on Galloway Circle. It was there that the police found a woman named Glenda Pruitt, who said that she had been speaking to a man that day who went by the name of Skip. After this conversation with Glenda, Sergeant Kelly Smiley asked Andy to go back to the police station with him. While they were at the station, Sergeant Kelly Smiley spoke to Lieutenant Jerry Johnson about what Andy and Glenda said to him at the house that was there on Galloway Circle. So when Sergeant Smiley mentioned Skip, Lieutenant Johnson said he actually knows who this person is. Skip is not his real name, but it's somebody that Lieutenant Johnson has interacted with in the past, and his real name was Liddell Lee. Lieutenant Johnson added that the prior year, he had even asked Liddell to become a police informant, but Liddell declined. And that's interesting to me because we just recently talked about police informants. I think that was maybe we talked about it on the Bounty Hunter episode we did recently. Mm -hmm. And I was just saying how kind of like, I I, I don't know how to feel about police informants, you know, and I just think it's it's an interesting concept, right, that you are an ex-criminal, but now you are working with the police as an informant and like... Because to me, sometimes I wonder what what your credibility is at that point. But I don't know. That's, you know, neither here nor there. And sometimes active criminals, they're just saying, listen, you have a couple drug charges. You work with us on this. We're not going to, you know, pursue them and stuff. Right. Right. It's interesting for sure. Right. But the fact that somebody would decline, I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying that this is the reason why people would decline. But to me, it's like, no, thank you. I would like to just keep doing crimes and not be a police informant. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. I would just like to keep doing crimes. New t-shirt idea. <laughs> um, so after this conversation, Lieutenant Johnson headed over to Glenda's house to speak with her. She told Lieutenant Johnson that she had seen this guy skip around the neighborhood about four or five times. And that's when Lieutenant Johnson told her that the man that she knows as Skip, his real name is actually Liddell Lee. He then asked Glenda to go over this conversation that she had with Skip that day. Glenda told him that she believed he was wearing a plaid shirt when she saw him and that when he walked by, they had just a very brief conversation. She mentioned that previously Skip had asked her for some marijuana, so she brought that up. And then the two of them spoke about how Liddell preferred cocaine to marijuana and that he was on his way to buy more. After Lieutenant Johnson concluded his conversation with Glenda, he called the station and had them put together this photo lineup so that they could show Glenda and Andy. Sergeant Smiley put together the photo lineup with six photos, with one man wearing a jacket, which is what Andy had said that the suspicious man he saw had on that day. Both Andy and Glenda were shown this lineup where they both picked Liddell out as the man they had seen earlier. This really was all the police needed. They quickly moved to obtain an arrest warrant, and less than two hours after Deborah's body was found, police went to the home of Liddell's mother and arrested him for Deborah's murder, which is incredible that this happened in such a very quick time span. They were able to get a name, find the address, and go get him. So fast. Like, literally the fastest I've ever heard in I a think story so, yeah. Ever? Yeah. So police searched the home of Liddell's mother, looking for any evidence tying Liddell to Deborah's murder. The clothes that Liddell was wearing at the time of his arrest, including a white t-shirt, jeans, and a pair of Converse shoes, were all taken for evidence, as well as a black jacket that was also found in the home. Police also scraped Liddell's nails for evidence. This, as well as the clothing, were all sent to the lab for testing. 
On Liddell's converse, there were two pinhead-sized spots of blood that were found. One was on the sole of the left shoe, and one was on the tongue of the right shoe. Testing was done to see whether or not this was even actually blood, and the test confirmed that it was. But there was actually such a small amount of the sample that testing for the presence of blood consumed the entire sample, so they couldn't do any more DNA testing. There was nothing else. They couldn't look for who could it belong to. The sample was completely done. As for Liddell's fingernail scraping, no blood or foreign materials were found. Police then speak to Liddell's brother, Howard, who was a sergeant in the Army at the time. Howard tells police that they had the wrong guy and that multiple people had been with Liddell all morning and could vouch for him not being anywhere near Deborah's house that day. Howard and Liddell both recount Liddell's movements from that morning to the police. Liddell stated that he didn't have a working car, so earlier in the day he asked both his mom and Howard for a ride to an appointment in Little Rock, but they both said no. Liddell said he got to his mom's house around 7.30 a.m., and he stayed there until 10.45. That's when he left to walk around the area to see if someone was available to give him a ride to Little Rock. Around 11 a.m., after not being able to find anyone to give him a ride, he walks back to his mother's house. When he arrives, he sees that his brother Howard had just gotten there, and Howard says he will take Liddell to this appointment to rent a center so he could make a payment. At 11.53 a.m., Liddell makes a $100 cash payment, and the brothers go to a liquor store and then another local store. Afterward, they go back to their mom's house, where she then asks her sons to take her car to go pick up a grill from Howard's house. Just a lot of busy activities that day, like busybody chores and stuff like that. Running around, yeah. Yeah. The two retrieved the grill, and they were back at their mom's house by 2 p.m. After hearing this story, police decided to head to Rena Center to speak to the clerk who helped Liddell that day. The clerk tells the police that on that particular day, three different people, including Liddell, had paid on their accounts in $100 bills. The clerk was able to give the police a copy of Liddell's receipt, which showed that Liddell had been there at 12.53 p.m., The time on the receipt actually said 11.53 a.m., but as the cashier explained, the clock on the receipt was set an hour ahead. Police decided to compare the three $100 bills to the serial numbers that were found on Deborah's father's $100 bills. So those numbers from back whenever Deborah possibly had her money stolen from the house, they're looking to see if these serial numbers could be close at all. And lo and behold, one of the Renaissance bills had a serial number that was just two away from one of her dad Stevens. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And so we still have so much more of this story to get into after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. There are only 24 hours in a day, and most days it feels like every single minute of them is spoken for in one way or another. I'm always looking for ways to save time and money, and thanks to stamps.com, I can do both. Now more than ever, taking extra trips to the post office feels like a lot. Thanks to stamps.com, I can do all of our shipping and mailing quick, easy, and at a cost-effective price. Time is money, so saving time is saving money. But on top of that, Stamps.com gives you actual discounts that you can't get anywhere else, like up to 30% off USPS rates and 86% off UPS. And Stamps.com is so easy to use, you don't need any special equipment. If you have a computer and a printer, you're in business. 
And speaking of business, Stamps.com will take your business to the next level. Whether you're an office sending out invoices, an Etsy shop sending out products, or a warehouse shipping out orders, Stamps.com is the mailing and shipping solution you've been searching for. And speaking of Etsy, Stamps.com works seamlessly with Etsy, Shopify, Amazon, eBay, and more. We've used Stamps.com for almost four years for Moms and Murder, and it makes sending out Patreon perks a cinch, thanks to the easy-to-use site, plus all the time and money we're saving. Stop wasting time and start saving money when you use Stamps.com to mail and ship. Sign up with promo code MOMSANDMURDER for special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter code MOMSANDMURDER. Have you ever felt burnout? Feels like a trick question, right? We've all been there, and maybe you're there right now. I know I feel like I am. I feel like I'm running on a hamster wheel, and I keep running, but now the wheel's off the track, and I'm headed over a cliff. Too dramatic? Probably. But you get the idea, and that's why I'm thankful for BetterHelp. Whether you're feeling burnout or overwhelmed, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Just talking with someone can help you figure out what's actually causing the stress in your life. As someone who's a big advocate for therapy, I can't tell you how much having my BetterHelp counselor has helped me. I talk to her every week, and there are weeks when I count down the hours to speak to her. Just having a fresh perspective and an expert to bounce stuff off of has really meant everything to me. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash moms. That's betterhelp.com slash moms. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were discussing the big break in the case that came for the police after they spoke to the cashier at Arena Center. So the police continued their investigation, and the next day they went to speak to another one of Deborah's neighbors named William. William told the police that on the day of Deborah's murder, sometime between 10 and 11 a.m., he had a knock on his door. And when he went to answer the door, there was a man there asking if he could borrow some tools. William let the man borrow both a driver ratchet and a socket. And this man told him that he would return the tools shortly, but he never came back. William was then shown the police lineup, and he also identified Liddell as the man that he saw that day. So the police continue to speak with more neighbors, including Chris Stowe, and she told them that just before noon on February 9th, she saw a black man that was around five foot six wearing a black jacket and blue jeans near her home. Chris said this man was walking fast and appeared to be intoxicated. It's unclear whether the police showed her the photo lineup, but she was not asked to provide any kind of a written statement. The police also spoke to Pamela Gomez, the wife of Andy Gomez. So remember, Andy is the man that had originally followed the suspicious man with his car after he saw, you know, he was weirded out enough by what he saw that he right. was like, let me go see what this guy is up to. So Pamela said that when her husband Andy went to follow the suspicious man, she saw a black man walking on their street. She said the man she saw kept turning and looking behind him as he walked, and this man was wearing blue jeans and tennis shoes, but that was about all she was able to recall. Although Liddell has an alibi, and there's no physical evidence that ties him to the murder of Deborah, he is charged with her murder. While he's awaiting trial, he also becomes a suspect in another murder as well as three rapes. Liddell professes that he is innocent on all of these charges. 
And we're going to briefly discuss these other crimes before we get into the trial for Deborah's murder. So the new murder charge that Liddell received stemmed from the 1989 murder of Christine Lewis, a woman whose parents lived behind Liddell's parents' house. On November 17, 1989, 22-year-old Christine was reported missing. Christine's son was three years old at the time, and he told police that three masked men beat his mom and then took her away. I know. Four days later, Christine's body was found in a vacant house near her home. Police found evidence that Christine had fought back against her attacker and was able to escape her attackers briefly. After she was recaptured, Christine was taken to the vacant house where she was beaten and sexually abused before ultimately being strangled to death. The first rape that Liddell was being charged with took place the night of November 27, 1990 in Jacksonville, Arkansas. A 17-year-old girl who was referred to as JP in court documents was the only adult at her sister's house where she was watching her three-year-old nephew and three-month-old niece. While JP was rocking her niece, a man came up behind her, put his arm around her neck, hit her on the head and face with an iron, and then forced her into a wooded area behind her home. JP was raped, choked, and held underwater until she lost consciousness. When JP regained consciousness, she was lying face up in the ditch wearing only her bra and t-shirt. She was able to make her way back to her sister's house where she called the police. JP told police that she wasn't able to see her rapist's face, but she knew he was a tall black man with large hands. Two hairs and swabs from her rape kit were taken and stored in the state crime lab's freezer. Latent fingerprints were also taken from inside and outside JP's sister's house. The case went cold for three years until handprints, fingerprints, hair, and blood samples were taken from Liddell after Deborah's murder. A palm print from JP's sister's house as well as rape kit swabs were matched to Liddell. The FBI agent that performed the DNA analysis said at the time that the probability of the attacker being someone other than Liddell was 1 in 83 million from, quote, the black population, end quote. The second rape that Liddell was charged with occurred on the evening of March 7, 1991 in Jacksonville, Arkansas. A 50-year-old woman who was referred to as LD in court documents left the grocery store and was walking home. She said as she walked in front of an elementary school, she noticed a tall black male following her. She stepped off the sidewalk to allow him to pass her, but as he passed her, he grabbed her around the neck and began to strangle her. The man then went through her purse to find money. He then dragged her for about one block to the back of the school building where it was darker and he told her to be quiet if she wanted to live. LD started to scream for help and the man strangled her until she passed out. The man then removed her belt and bound her hands with it. He dumped out her purse and took an apron that he found in it to cover her face with. He then removed her shoes and everything from the waist and below and demanded that she perform oral sex. She refused and he raped her. He then left her there with her hands still bound and her face covered. Rape kit swabs from LD were sent to the state crime lab, and results showed that the probability from someone other than Liddell being the attacker were 1 in 85 million, again from the black population. We don't have many details about the third rape, but the police allege that in December of 1992, Liddell raped a 70-year-old woman known as AS in court documents, and then left her for dead. After being charged in all of these additional cases, Liddell told the Arkansas leader that They're looking for revenge. He said, quote, they're blinded against finding the truth. They're prosecuting me with opinions, not facts. All these unsolved crimes, they had to find somebody. I filled the description of a tall, slim guy, end quote. 
In October of 1994, Liddell's trial for the murder of Deborah Reese began. The prosecution said that Liddell cased Deborah's neighborhood for a while before he found the perfect target to rob, and unfortunately, that was Deborah Reese. They tell the jury about all the evidence that was found during their investigation, including the footprints, the hair, the blood on Liddell's shoes, and everything else that we discussed. We mentioned earlier that the crime scene was covered in blood, and even prosecutors admit that it would be impossible for Liddell to have no blood on him, given the gruesome nature of the crime. But according to the prosecution, Liddell had wrapped a rug around Deborah before attacking her, keeping all the blood off of himself. They said the rug also explained this pattern that was found on Deborah's cheek. They surmised that Liddell had hit Deborah while her face was against the rug. The defense called up multiple acquaintances and family members to testify to Liddell's whereabouts during the time Deborah was murdered. They also introduced those timestamped records from Rena Center that show where Liddell was during the time that Deborah was murdered. During closing arguments, the prosecution tells the jury that Liddell, quote, is a hunter. This is his habitat, and his prey were the people of Jacksonville from 1990 to 1993, end quote. So the defense responds with, quote, who are we then to say that we are going to kill Liddell Lee, end quote, which is not a great response from what they said. And in their response, the prosecution said, quote, I will tell you who we are. We are the hunted, end quote, which is a very powerful statement. Yeah. So Liddell's attorneys, though, didn't object to the statement because they claimed later that they missed it at the time, which, yikes. So the jurors go back to deliberate, but eventually the trial ends with a hung jury with the prosecution saying they would try Liddell again. The second trial would take another year to begin due to multiple delays. One of the most serious delays is due to a conflict of interest with one of Liddell's attorneys. The attorney point blank told Liddell that he thought the first jury should have just convicted him. Obviously, Liddell doesn't feel like this attorney can properly represent him with these feelings, and he pushes for a hearing to have this attorney removed from representing him. After months of hearings, Liddell finally agrees to let the attorney stay on for the second trial, as long as an additional attorney is added to the team. On September 21st, 1995, just one month before his second trial for Deborah's murder, Liddell is found guilty of the 1990 kidnapping and rape of J.P., He was sentenced to 60 years on each conviction, which would be served concurrently. During this second trial, the prosecution claimed that Liddell was, quote, checking out his prey, end quote, while he was stalking Deborah's neighborhood. The prosecution goes on to introduce the same physical evidence from the first trial and really makes it out to be more damning than it actually was. They mentioned the hair found at Deborah's home, and they said it was matched to Liddell via examination under a microscope so there wasn't actually any dna testing they just said it looks like his um, under a microscope and they also said those two spots of quote-unquote human blood that were found on liddell's shoes were also most likely deborah's but they can't actually physically link them so the prosecution had an expert testify that the soles of liddell's shoes were quote the exact same size and same pattern as those that were found on two partial shoe prints near deborah's bed The prosecution also told the jury that Liddell's motive for the murder of Deborah was simple. He wanted to steal her money and use the $300 he stole to make his payment to Rent-A-Center. In order to convict Liddell, the prosecution also relied on the eyewitness testimony from the day of the murder. However, the eyewitness testimony is really contradictory. For starters, William testified that Liddell had come to his house to borrow tools. The two spoke for 10 to 15 minutes face-to-face. 
William said he was positive that Liddell was not wearing a jacket, had no baseball cap on, and was wearing a short sleeve shirt that day. Andy Gomez says the man that he saw enter and leave Deborah's house was wearing a ball cap and a dark jacket. And Glenda Pruitt said she wasn't sure what the man that she saw was wearing, although on the stand, she was reminded that in an earlier hearing, she did say she thought Liddell had on a red plaid shirt. The defense for Liddell was pretty much the same for the second trial as it was in the first. They still went with, you know, this whole Liddell is innocent and he's been, you know, misidentified theory. In their opening statement, the defense says that they'll be providing alibi evidence to prove that Liddell wasn't Deborah's true killer. But in reality, the defense didn't call a single alibi witness. In fact, there really wasn't much of a defense at all. They told the jury that the state didn't have enough evidence to prove that Liddell stole the money from Deborah's house and he could have obtained the $100 bill used at Renna Center someplace else. But the defense didn't bother to tell the jury that Liddell had just received a $1,500 tax return and wasn't in need of Deborah's money. They also never told the jury that none of the eyewitnesses saw Liddell with any blood on him. There was really no way the killer could have made it out of the house without being covered in blood. As we said before, there was a lot of blood. So in one win for the defense, one of the prosecution's experts admitted on the stand that none of the fingerprints that were even found at the scene were a match to Liddell. And we're going to get into the outcome of the trial and what happened next after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. The other day I went to grab aquifer from the cabinet and was immediately brought back to those days of grabbing aquifer for the never-ending baby rashes, thanks in part to the less than quality diapers I was using. And while I don't have to worry about diapers anymore, I will never forget. Like those nights when you think your baby might just sleep through the night, only to awaken due to their leaky diaper, which of course turns into a nasty diaper rash. But thanks to Coterie, moms today can rest easy knowing that their babies can sleep well thanks to Coterie's ability to hold two times more liquid capacity as well as four times faster moisture wicking compared to other brands. This means your baby is happy and comfortable and you just might get a full night's sleep without interruptions, which is true zen. A happy baby is a dry baby, and thanks to amazing features like Coterie using clothing-grade material, your baby's diapers literally have a cashmere-like feel, so they stay comfortable for longer days and nights. Not only has Coterie been awarded Best Diapers and Wipes by both The Bump and Parents.com, but they are dermatologist-tested and only use the cleanest ingredients. But when I gave my sister-in-law a box for her to try for my niece Lila, she said she's had less issue with diaper rash since they've been using them. Right now, Coterie is partnering with our podcast to offer you 20% off your first order, plus free shipping at Coterie.com slash momsandmurder. That's Coterie, spelled C-O-T-E-R-I-E dot com slash momsandmurder for 20% off and free shipping. Coterie.com slash momsandmurder. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? 
Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were at the point where the second jury was getting ready to deliberate and decide whether or not Liddell was guilty or not guilty of the murder of Deborah Reese. Ultimately, though, the jury finds Liddell guilty of capital murder in the second trial. During the penalty phase, the prosecution had introduced evidence that Liddell had raped three women prior to Deborah's murder, what we spoke about earlier. One of the women who was raped identified Liddell as the man who raped her for the first time while she was testifying. So that's the first time she actually made that um, statement of who it was. On October 16, 1995, Liddell Lee is sentenced to die by lethal injection. Just three days later, on October 19th, he is convicted of the 1991 rape, kidnapping, and robbery of the victim, LD. He's sentenced to life plus 90 years to be served consecutively. The next month, Liddell goes to trial for the 1989 murder of Christine Lewis. Ultimately, though, this leads to a mistrial after the jury was unable to reach a verdict, which I find it fascinating that he, two of his trials is a mistrial like that they could not come up with anything so it never seemed like a slam dunk with any of this so the state chooses not to retry their case as liddell is already sentenced to death and this was the same reason that the state chose not to take liddell to trial for the rape of as in 1992 so following his conviction for the murder of deborah reese liddell appeals the verdict to the arkansas supreme court the court affirms both his conviction and his sentence Liddell then chooses to petition for post-conviction relief on the grounds of ineffective counsel. Liddell is granted a new attorney to represent him in post-conviction relief proceedings. 
During the five days of proceedings, Liddell's attorney argues Liddell's case. He reveals in these proceedings that the trial judge had been having an affair with the assistant prosecutor in his case and the two later married, which seems like a huge conflict of interest if the yeah. other side <laughs> is literally uh, sleeping with a judge. that That's going to be a problem. So following these proceedings, the Arkansas Supreme Court denies Liddell's petition. Liddell then files a petition for a writ of habeas corpus in the district court. The district court reviews the transcripts of Liddell's post-conviction proceedings, and they start to question whether or not Liddell has been deprived of his due process rights. So this is wild to me. The court notes that Liddell's court-appointed post-conviction attorney, quote, may have been impaired to the point of unavailability on one or more days, end quote. And while that sounds bad, it's actually way worse than you can imagine. At one point during the proceedings, the prosecutor asked the judge to have Liddell's attorney take a drug test based on his performance in court. He said, quote, he's just not with us. He's reintroduced the same items of evidence over and over again. He's asking incoherent questions. His speech is slurred. He stumbled in the courtroom, end quote. So the prosecutor said the court has an obligation to make sure that Liddell has competent counsel. The judge said he had no authority to make the attorney take a drug test, and he continued the hearing. While reviewing the proceedings, the district court also noticed that the same defense attorney tells the judge that his caseload is way too high, and he actually asked the judge multiple times if he could have someone else relieve him or give him a co-counsel, but he was denied, wow. which, yeah, this is a lot to have against you yeah. in your trial. And can you imagine sitting there, you know, guilty or not, sitting there and hearing this going on and being like, oh, I'm never going to get out of this. Like, this is an absolute right. disaster. And guilty or not, everybody is still entitled to have, like, a, an attorney, right? So I would imagine how terrible it would be if this was, like, your luck of the draw when you have, like, all this going Absolutely. on in your, yeah. in your case, you know? With all these issues in mind, the district court orders that Liddell's petition for writ of habeas corpus be stayed. So the circuit court held new post-conviction relief hearings. And during these hearings, Liddell's new counsel didn't even bother to bring up multiple things from the first set of hearings, including the trial judge's affair with the assistant prosecutor. The counsel only presented about a half a day's worth of testimony and argument, while Liddell's impaired attorney had presented five days' worth Although probably wasn't five days of quality um, of anything right. quality. So the circuit court again denies Liddell's motion for post-conviction relief. And he appealed that decision to the Supreme Court of Arkansas, who in turn denied that. All further appeals and motions were, have been ultimately denied. In February of 2017, the state of Arkansas realized that its supply of lethal injection drugs was going to be expiring at the end of April, which was just two months later. And that meant they wouldn't be able to get any drugs to replace the expired ones because of a global ban on medicine being sent to the U.S. for use in executions. To make use of the nearly expired drugs, the Arkansas governor scheduled eight executions which, oh my goodness, that is mind-blowing. So all eight of these people were to be executed back-to-back -back during an 11-day period in April. This meant that Liddell was now scheduled to be executed on April the 20th. So at this point, the ACLU was involved, and they read a news account about how Liddell's attorneys never pursued a claim that Liddell might be ineligible for the death penalty altogether because he actually had an intellectual disability. In fact, in regards to the death penalty, his attorneys never brought up that he had fetal alcohol syndrome, 
which caused significant brain damage and significant intellectual disability, which I agree is a huge thing that should be mentioned. Absolutely. If you're, this is a death penalty case, like all of that should be out there. That, I mean, the guy had five days. How has this never been brought up? Yeah. So the ACLU and the Innocence Project took on Liddell's case, and within less than two weeks before his scheduled execution, they found, quote, serious flaws in the evidence that was used to convict Liddell. For starters, there was no physical evidence directly connecting him to Deborah's murder, and none of the physical evidence found has been tested with modern technology. Like, as we were saying before, they kind of were just like, well, this looks like something that what, you know, a part of Liddell's, but we don't have DNA testing to confirm. None of his attorneys even requested for DNA to be retested, which also I find interesting. There's just different technology now that they'll say, you know, we hear like, oh, that's not really how they test for that anymore. Or gunshot residue being like, well, that doesn't necessarily, you could be close to it or whatever. But before it was like, this is, this is the law. Like, this is just the truth. This is what it is. And now it's like, "Mm, we, we know things are a little different now. Right. But, and like, literally that's one of the reasons why we store evidence and we keep evidence, you know, sealed and under certain conditions so that we can go back at another time in the future and, you know, take another look at it as technology progresses and as we kind of get more advanced. So yeah, it is interesting to me that they never even requested that it was that, you know, they test for DNA. So the prosecution's experts did admit that the results of multiple forensic tests were inconclusive, but the prosecution still, quote, inflated the significance of the test results, which led to Liddell's conviction. The prosecution said during the trial that the hairs from the crime scene were microscopically consistent with Liddell's hair based on visual examination. But this forensic method has since been discredited, as we kind of just talked about. Thank goodness. Fingerprints that were taken from key areas of the crime scene were not Liddell's, and they have never been identified or entered into the national database. The prosecution also said that those two small spots of human blood were most likely Deborah's, but no other blood was found on Liddell's shoes or clothes. It's hard to believe that from a crime scene so gruesome, even if he, you know, had covered her in a rug, it's still hard to believe that he only would have had these two tiny drops of blood on his shoes. Feels like you would have none or you'd be covered and exactly. there's just no in between. Right. And while we're on the topic of the rug, it was found that the mark on Deborah's cheek wasn't from the rug at all. It was made by a shoe print on Deborah's face, one that did not match Liddell's shoes. In addition to this, during the trial, there had been one prosecution expert who testified that Liddell's shoe prints were found in Deborah's room. This particular expert had only taken a one-week FBI course, though, and only, you know, had like a little part covered, you know, footprint comparison methods. So it's not like he was very experienced or, you know, had done a lot of this type of work before. There was a leading expert in eyewitness misidentification that found that eyewitnesses were shown a photo lineup that was shockingly biased against Liddell, irrevocably tainting their identifications And the, quote, circumstances under which these witnesses viewed the suspect provided highly limited and, in the case of key witnesses, simply impossible conditions to make a reliable identification, end quote. Also, it was never made clear which one of the $300 bills taken from Renaissance was actually used by Liddell. Renaissance even had the names of the other two people that paid with $100 bills, but the police didn't look into them any further to see if maybe they had taken out cash from the same bank as Deborah's father, or if they had other bills in their possession that were close to the same serial numbers. 
On April 17th, just days before Liddell is scheduled to be executed, the ACLU and Innocence Project filed a petition for DNA testing, which is denied the next day without any hearing, expert testimony, absolutely nothing. On April 19th, Liddell speaks to a BBC journalist and talks about how his life on death row is really like a nightmare that he can't wake up from. He said he couldn't prevent his execution and his dying words would be, quote, as it has been, I am an innocent man. On April 20th, Liddell and seven other death row inmates file a motion for stay of execution. Four of the eight actually receive a stay, but Liddell is not among those. One of the men who does receive a stay is Stacy Johnson. He's granted an opportunity for further DNA testing. He had been scheduled to be executed on the same day as Liddell. Right after they found out that Liddell was not given a stay of execution, the ACLU and Innocence Project file for an emergency stay of execution so that DNA may be tested. The motion was denied because Liddell had, quote, simply delayed too long, end quote. And this was their last shot. Liddell would be scheduled that same evening. How offensive is it they would say he delayed too long? And you know, <laughs> I know, just, yeah. Oh, it's the worst. So Liddell did not request a last meal. Instead, he chose to receive communion. He boxed up and gave away his belongings and gave no final statement. Liddell was the first person to be executed in Arkansas in over 10 years and was pronounced dead just before midnight at 11.56 p.m. Even after his conviction, the ACLU and Innocence Project continue to investigate his case. They've collected new evidence and have analyzed existing evidence that wasn't fully investigated previously. However, local officials refuse to test the DNA, and they will not run fingerprints from the crime scene through the national database. But after a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit is filed, the city of Jacksonville finally agrees to test the DNA and fingerprint evidence. In April of 2021, which was just last year, they announced that the new testing showed DNA from an unknown man on the handle of the tire thumper that was used to kill Deborah. DNA from the handle also matched DNA that was found on the bloody white t-shirt that was wrapped around the tire thumper. The unknown male DNA isn't on the national database, but it will now be compared against any new additions. According to the Innocence Project, the results, quote, proved to be incomplete and partial, end quote, but are still significant. Wow. These cases, you know, sometimes there's, we just, there's tough cases, you know, that it's, I don't know, this one is one of those, I'm just like, wow. Yeah, I feel like whatever happened, he did not get a fair trial. And then if he's not getting a fair trial and something's wrong with the evidence or whatever, there's there could be a killer out. You know what right. I mean? So it just doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like complete justice with so many questions still being out there. But man, the state of Arkansas, that is one of the most wild things I've ever heard to be like, whoops, ever. we're out of execution medic medication. We got to hurry this up. Yeah, that's just mind-blowing Yeah, just crazy, crazy. Okay, Melissa, are we ready to turn the page and go on to last thing before we go? I, yes. I think um, I am. <laughs> you told me to just show up and I, here yes. I am. <laughs> and can I tell you once again, this was not my original idea, but I couldn't come up with my original idea. So I'm going to do something different and I think you're going to like it. In the same vein as the freaking heat, and I told Mandy a minute ago off mic, I was outside and I put sunscreen on and then I just rubbed my eye and now I I'm literally cannot see out of my right eye now. I'm so sick of this heat. Mandy, we are <laughs> going to play a game and uh, it's I'm going to send you a product and you are going to tell me if you would uh, use it um, okay. and how much you would pay for it. And then I'll tell you how much it's actually on sale for. Okay. 
I like this. Uh, I think. That, am yeah. I telling? Am I saying what it is? Um, you can. You can describe it or whatever. Okay, so this is like a bottle of water, but it has like a squirter thing or a mister thing. So I like can, squirter thing better. <laughs> <laughs> so you can, I guess, mist yourself and cool yourself in the summer. Yes, but the mist straight up looks like a water hose like spraying this woman's face so i'm gonna say i would probably not use this i might buy it for my kids but i don't think i would personally use it and i'll be totally honest it's because i wear makeup and i like to have my hair cute and that looks like it would just destroy all my efforts to even look halfway decent so i would not use this product when you're running or you're outside you're using you're wearing makeup and hair no no i guess not when i'm doing that but i don't carry anything with me when i go um outside and exercise i don't like well i also don't go outside when it's like 107 true true (laughs) not applicable so how much would you pay for it if you bought it for your kids 15 dollars. okay so it's 20 dollars on amazon so that wasn't terrible yeah that wasn't terrible okay the next one should have just i don't know what this (laughs) (laughs) um i'll put these on instagram maybe we'll make a little video thing mandy this is a what is this what do you see I mean, I don't know. At first, I saw ice a life jacket. Oh, it's a it's like a life vest with ice cubes on the inside to keep you cool. <laughs> it is. It looks like police wearing like a a bulletproof vest. It did. But I it's thought just... that's what I thought it was like a tactical <laughs> vest at first. I was like, ooh, what is she? What is she no. showing me? Where is this going? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a vest with ice cubes. Okay, Maybe... absolutely, I would wear this. You would. <laughs> Probably How much like, would you pay for it? Um, I would probably pay, I don't know. You know, I'm really cheap. So if it costs more than $25, I probably wouldn't oh, buy oh, it. Oh, big disappointment for you. This is $100. Oh, no, I definitely wouldn't do that. <laughs> no, I feel like I could accomplish the same thing by just like sticking a cold pack down my shirt. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. this guy, he's re- and he's wearing long <laughs> sleeves, you idiot. No wonder you're having problems. Right. Okay, here's the next one. Is it the thing around his neck? It is. It's a cool collar. Um, no, I'm not wearing that. Really? Uh, no. It's cool. It's not though. It looks like it's choking <laughs> him. It looks like he's it got does. like a I don't know. It looks or a neck brace. He's playing tennis see, with a neck I, brace. Yeah, exactly. And see, like if I saw it on someone, I would never like laugh or even you know, I would just assume that they had a neck injury. So that is also why I would not put it on myself. <laughs> right. Um, how much do you think it goes for or what would, well, you um, wouldn't get that it. looks expensive. That looks expensive. I'm saying $250. Oh, that one's $60. Oh, so what? what a killer deal. Yeah. Wow. We're all over it on this one. Okay. Impressive. I have two more. So this is the next one. Yes. Yes. I want that. <laughs> <laughs> what is it, Mandy? Um, it's like a little... A little spa bar. Yeah, it looks like it attaches to your hot tub, the edge of your hot tub, but it's like a tray and you can put everything in there, like a little charcuterie tray for your hot tub. Of it course is. you want that. Yeah, everybody wants that. <laughs> Except for the part where it's a hot tub and I'm like, what, who is doing this right now? I look yeah. for ways to cool yourself down. And but I'm like a little it. confused by like there being like 15 bananas on there because like, <laughs> so many bananas. <laughs> Who's eating bananas in the hot tub? <laughs> that combination with that cheese dip, it's just going to be farts in your hot tub the yeah, entire time. <laughs> it's very upsetting. And I guess you just drink the wine out of a bottle because there is no cups for you at all. Yeah, who, you don't need one. <laughs> this is an accident waiting to happen. But if you'd like to buy it, it's seventeen dollars and twenty nine cents. Oh, that's Amazon. cheap! Oh my gosh, I have to go get that. I love. I that. feel like that. I don't even have a hot tub, but I feel like I need that. <laughs> I know. I was trying to figure out if you can connect it to a pool. Yeah. So here, here's your last one, Mandy. 
Um, okay, first of all, I don't know exactly what this is, but I want to tell you that I already have something very similar on my bed. Mandy. Yes. Do you? I have this awesome device called an Uller. Is that what this is an ad for? No, I, no. it's not called an Uller. Actually, I don't even know what it's called. I'm totally it? shouting out this company and they're not even paying us to do it, but it's called Uller, but it goes, it's like a pad that goes on top of your bed under your sheets, but it like lays on there and then it is, um, it, you can change the temperature of your bed. So I set mine <gasps> if I want it cooler or you can also make it warmer. So your side of the bed and then my husband operates his own side. He has his own Uller on his side, but I freaking love it. So yes, I would buy it. <laughs> this one says it like creates a, a ghostly breeze under your sheets with Ooh. like a bed fan. <laughs> so it looks like you're possessed on the no, middle of the mine night. Mine actually cools like it's a pad that you lay on and it's cooled by water. So like there's a bit, it's not that big. Oh, actually, I saw that. I saw but that. But it like runs through a tubing system and the thing like sits under the bed and you don't even see it. I mean, it actually looks kind of cool. So it, it doesn't bother me. But um, it's just like you have to keep the water in there, but it kind of runs water through at different temperatures. So there's no air. Oh. But actually, I kind of would. I don't. I mean, I guess I could see where sometimes I would like it to blow air, and sometimes I just would not want blow. Yeah, that air seems on like me. it seems like a lot. But I will say it's only eighty nine dollars, so yeah. that's yeah, not that's the nice. worst thing. Yeah, that's nice. okay. Last one I just sent you, Mandy. This is a. Um, a it's a portable air conditioner and cooler. A pool. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, like, in what world would this seem like a good idea? <laughs> oh, what would just, you, I don't. What do you have to just stand in front of it? Stand wanna... in straight in front of it in your face, air conditioning. But that's and it's it. just. So wait, does it operate on the like theory that you have ice inside the cooler, and so it's just pulling the cold air from your cooler? Yeah. So it's why ruining you, your yeah, drinks. Exactly. So why would you want to do that? I don't. Mandy, get would that. you buy it? No. Okay, but how much do you think they would sell it for? Something ridiculous. I'm saying yeah. one fifty. Three ninety five. No, no way. Yes, immediately now. The concept is stupid. I don't like it. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> so anyway, well, hey, great job. So if you're looking for ways to cool yourself down this summer, uh, check out our Instagram. I'll put those up. And yes. uh, these are some very you want them. Very outside the box ideas. <laughs> very. <laughs> All right. I like those. Okay, Melissa. Well, I hope you enjoy the rest of your hot, hot girl summer. (laughs) I'm an okay girl at best, but I'm hot right now. (laughs) All right. We will be back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.